we knew we were outsiders. We knew we were outside the pale. We lived in the village. We were outsiders. We were dykes, right? A lot of us were artists. We hated typing, <laughs> right? We didn't want straight jobs. Whatever we did, we were at the fringe. Now, this, of course, was the 50s. It was like the, um, the gay girl's version of the beatniks. That was Audre Lorde, prolific author and black lesbian feminist from New York City. Her story is one of the many that is brought to life within the Schoenberg Center, a New York public library cultural institution dedicated to the studies of the African diaspora. Welcome, everyone, to the first episode of Making Queer History Public, a new podcast from the American Social History Project Center for Media and Learning at the Graduate Center at the City University of New York. This isn't a podcast about queer history exactly, it takes a look at the work that historians and other knowledge workers are doing to make queer history accessible to the public. So, we're going to be exploring some ways that LGBTQ plus history is being preserved and presented in public spaces. My name is Danielle Bennett. I'm a doctoral student at the CUNY Graduate Center researching LGBTQ plus public history. And I'm Annie Volk, a professor of history at the Graduate Center and the executive director of the American Social History Project. I'm pleased to join you, Danielle, to introduce the inaugural episode of Making Queer History Public. This episode of the podcast features an interview I conducted with Stephen G. Fullwood. Fullwood is a documentarian, an archivist, and writer, and he has worked for several decades on efforts to transform how archives collect materials related to the African diaspora and LGBTQ plus experiences. In 1999, he began his work at the Schomburg Library, which holds materials related to Audre Lorde and many other notable African-American LGBTQ plus authors, artists, activists, and educators. Sounds like Stephen is a perfect person to talk about making queer history public. Yes, and I'm really looking forward to sharing the interview and talking with you, Danielle, about some of the points that Stephen raises about the process of creating a queer archive. Archives are such an important topic for us to explore because queer and trans voices have often been suppressed, straightened, or even totally excluded from archives as a method to deny their historical existence. Folks like Stephen have worked tirelessly to develop archives of queer and trans history, making them legible within the archive and available for researchers and the public. Let's hear from Stephen about how he got started working with the Schoenberg's Archive of Queer Black Life. My name is Stephen G. Fullwood, and I am the co-founder of the Nomadic Archivist Project, which is a very small organization that helps people, individuals, organizations, and institutions, specifically people of African descent, decide what they want to do with their archives, whether they want to work with an institution, keep their archives, simply organize their archives. We are there for them. We were founded in 2017. Um, my former colleague at the Schomburg Center, Miranda Mims and I um, formulated because we wanted to continue doing work in the Black community uh, to help them think through what their options were when it comes to preserving their um, archival records. I mentioned the Schomburg Center because I was there for 19 years, three months and 24 days. I started in 1998 as an archivist for 15 years, and I worked in the Manuscripts, Archives, and Red Books Division under the 
direction of Diana Chatonier, who is an amazing curator who really is responsible for the person you're talking to today. And then for about four years, I was the associate then assistant curator of the manuscripts division. And where our story sort of connects here is that I founded the In the Life Archive, which was formerly known as the Black and Lesbian Archive, and about a year after I got there. So in 1999, I approached my curator about starting this particular archival initiative. And I did it because for two reasons. One, the Schomburg already had a number of Black queer collections, including Joseph Beam, editor of In the Life, which was the first Black anthology, Melvin Dixon, who was a poet, professor, and translator, as well as Other Countries, which was a Black gay writers collective founded in 1986. And so I was in the right place at the right time to do this work. I'm in the right place, right place. I'm in Harlem and, you know, <laughs> where the Harlem Renaissance was born, but also the Black Power Movement was born in um, the year I was born in 1966 here in New York City. And um, yeah, I'm probably one, the, a probably unique person in the sense that the calling found me around memory work and archives. And so... So we're here today to talk especially about the In the Life archive, and you just gave us a small introduction to it. But I wonder if you could say a little more about what inspired you to start that collection. What inspired me to do was really started with my own collection, materials I had been collecting for years. I'm originally from Toledo, Ohio, Midwest Ohio man, and I moved to New York City in 1998, 19, December 97, to begin working at the Schomburg in February of 98. And I was overwhelmed by New York City, I'm sure as any Midwesterner or anyone else outside of New York City would be. But what I found here was the, a community of folks. And there were a smaller community in Ohio, but largely I was collecting things through bookstores or ordering things online. And so my small collection became the basis for what was then called the Black and Lesbian Archive, which was a placeholder because I couldn't think of a name that would always have its arms open, you know, a name that we wouldn't have to change every two or three years based on how people were identifying. And so in 2013, I renamed the collection, the In the Life Collection, to honor both Joe Beam, Joseph Beam, and his book and his work, but also uh, it, you didn't have to change the name <laughs> anymore. It would be a very broad, thoughtful, engaged in the community name. And so In the Life, for those who don't know, was a, a, derogatory, a derogatory term for people who were in the street street life, pimps, pimps, prostitutes, and that sort of thing. And it included queer people. And Joe appropriated that name, reappropriated and dusted it off and said, okay, here's a name that we can use. <laughs> um, and it became, in the instance for the Black, uh, excuse me, the In the Life anthology. When I started the collection, I knew that one of the, um, the aims was to collect materials, collect, catalog, and make available to the public materials produced by and about people of African descent who identified as LGBTQ+. And the, the key here is that these people identify themselves as non-heterosexual, not someone else. So that was one of the keys, because it made no sense to collect materials where there were rumored to be um, a queer person in some manner, shape, or form. And I bring the example of the Harlem Renaissance collections that are at Yale University, 
Langston Hughes, County Cullen, Wallace Thurman. These were all men who were rumored to be non-heterosexual, queer, gay, what have you. So um, one of the things as an archivist I do not do is to go back and recatalog collections based on how people identify today. I think you can point in the direction of a particular person and say, well, he, she, they may have identified this and that way, but there's nothing in the collection that says this. And it's a portrayal, I think, in some cases of under the auspices of when that collection came in, how to, you know, in terms of re-cataloging in that way. So the In the Life collection, we wanted to say these people identified as such, and here's the information for you. Now, let's dig into this for a minute. The issue of how people identified themselves in the past is a complicated one for historians. Because of homophobia and transphobia, many people have not been able to be open about their sexuality. Even when people have been more forthright about their desires, archives sometimes even remove materials that address same-sex or queer intimacies, further obscuring the history. For many queer archivists, and others involved in collecting LGBTQ archives, it's urgent that past practices are not repeated and that collections clearly acknowledge how individuals express their own sexuality without placing anachronistic terms and identities on them. But what Stephen is saying here, that the In the Life archive only includes materials from figures who acknowledge their same-sex desires, either publicly or privately through existing documents, is a narrow way to collect queer and trans people's past. It's an interesting example of how the work of archivists and the work of historians can sometimes diverge. The archivist's job is to make sure the data of human history is preserved within the boundaries of the particular collection that they work on. As they do this, archivists inevitably shape how people understand each collection through how it gets described and organized within the library. But the task for historians and other scholars is to impose meaning as they look through archival collections, interpret and contextualize multiple pieces of evidence, and then suggest new paths for our understanding of the past. Stephen's point is that even as historians gain new understandings of LGBTQ plus people's lives and the circumstances that shaped how they identified and acted, those new interpretations won't change whether the Schomburg describes their existing collections as queer or not. It does mean that they're standing on very firm ground in terms of their materials being sort of unimpeachably queer. Yes, and it's a choice that they made to determine the scope of their collection, and I think it's a perfectly reasonable choice. Certainly, there's plenty of material to collect. That decision may also reflect the tensions of doing this work when Stephen began it in the 1990s, at a time when many people worried about the personal, political, and intellectual consequences of outing people without their consent. Let's go back to the tape now and hear about how this archive fits into the larger community story told by the Schomburg Center. So a couple of times you've used this metaphor of having your arms open or the Schomburg having its arms open, which is such a lovely visual image. And I wonder if you could say more about how you see that in connection to this particular In the Life collection and also the Schomburg in relation to the community in which it's located. I'll start with Arthur Schomburg, for whom the collection is named. He was an African-American Puerto Rican man born in 1880 seven in Puerto Rico, and there are two stories about Arthur Schomburg. One is that as a fifth grader, he was told that there's no such thing as black history. 
and or another story about there being an Italian club, a German club, but no African club. And this allegedly set him on a lifelong quest to collect materials produced by and about people of African descent. So he was a collector, an avid collector all of his life. And in 1926, his collection was purchased by the New Republic Library with a grant from the Carnegie Corporation. And they founded um, this collection that lived, that lived in the 135th Street Branch Library for years. And so in 1932, he became the curator of that collection. In 1938, unfortunately, he died. And then two years later, they renamed the collection in his honor. Years later, in 1972, the New York Public Library designated that collection as a research collection, as a research library. In the 1980, <laughs> the building that most people recognize in Harlem was built, and therefore the collection um, was the center, basically, of that particular institution. And it's an institution that does um, interpretive programming. So the collections inform the kinds of pro programmatic work that they do. And Schomburg has been at the, it's a global Black collection. So it's African, African diasporic, anywhere where Black people have been or gone or have been taken to, there are materials in that collection there. Their relationship with the Harlem community, as well as the, the larger communities in which, say, the Caribbean community or African folks who settled in, in Europe somewhere or in Canada or what have you, has been a strong one for years because the materials bear out not only that relationship, but the kind of programs that they do. So it's been, it's a kind of institution that I would have loved to have stayed at until I retired, but I had other plans. And so I feel like I'm still largely a part of Schomburg because I couldn't have got a better education about everything there. Not simply about the African diaspora or Africa, but simply about how information um, is created, stored, misinterpreted. <laughs> um, and that one of the things that uh, one of my favorite um, quotes from a woman named Annette Bennett, who's been at the Schomburg forever, said is that every day is Black history at the Schomburg Center. So it's not just one month. So the Schomburg was a draw for sure and continues to be a draw. It's a wonderful place in that way. Um, and again, I, I, I can't emphasize enough that taking a collection and letting it sit on the shelf because it doesn't, because they're not bringing it into public programming or in exhibitions and so forth. It's great to have an institution that does that, like the National um, Museum of African American History and Culture, the Auburn Avenue Research Library on African American Culture and History in Atlanta. There are these wonderful institutions that are constantly making these things um, available to the public in a variety of ways. It's all about context and it's all about being able to, to one, if you're a part of that community, see that the archival institutions are living up to the mandate to collect the communities that they serve. And then also for people who don't know anything about this to see an exhibition or to see photographs and go, oh my God, what is this? And to be exposed to it. Because that's, it makes no sense to collect things and then just put them away for quote unquote scholars. No, the public needs to see it. And that's why I'm happy I was at a public institution for that long. So I'd love to hear more about the kind of public programming that you've been able to organize and I think as part of that, I'm especially curious, too, about who you see as the audience for both the programs, but also for this collection. 
I know you also helped create a Black Lives Matter exhibition that I'd love to hear more about. I reached into the In the Life archive and pulled out letters uh, written by and written to um, Black gays and lesbians. And I say that specifically because there weren't a lot of bis- there weren't any bisexual or transgender letters in the collection as of yet. And I think that's largely because of collection collecting over the years and language, as well as a lack of mass-produced materials produced by Black bisexuals and Black transgender folk at that time. And so hopefully that changes over the years. I'll be looking for it. I'm an advocate for that as well. And so my part of the um, Black Lives Matter exhibition was called Epistolary Lives. And so we have letters from Audrey Lord to Joe Beam, even though she wasn't queer, Maya Angelou to James Baldwin, Lorraine Hansberry, these were amazing letters. And so I remember someone telling me he never thought he'd see anything like this at any institution. And he was an older man, he was in the 60s, I believe, at the time. And that excites me when people actually come and tell me that this mattered to them in this way or that way. And I think just having those letters on display for the for the, the community that didn't identify any kind of way, who are just walking through or maybe visiting the city and they see this stuff, very important. I think the audiences for the work that I'm doing is everyone. And also it it I think centering blackness in any institution or women or queer folk helps to um, I said this before, just break open your imagination about what's possible. So archives are exclusively inclusive. <laughs> um, and they're exclusive because they can't collect everything. But they're inclusive based on what they're collecting, right? And they can never tell the complete story. So archives should not be seen as the end-all be-all. You use the term early on in introducing yourself. You described yourself as a memory worker. Is that the same thing as an archivist? I think memory worker is much more broad. So you can be a genealogist, you can be an independent archivist, you can work in some aspect of collecting history and culture. And so you can be a curator, you might be a filmmaker. I think that memory worker, I heard the term, I don't know, years ago, and it made sense to me because I felt like it just broadened the space for the different kinds of people doing this work to kind of come together and talk about their practices, share resources, network, and so forth. And yeah, I know some archivists describe themselves as memory workers versus archivists. They might do that professionally, but they know I'm a memory worker. And I feel like archivists is more, this is what you do. A memory worker feels a lot more expansive and it vibrates differently for me. Let's talk about this idea of being a memory worker for a moment. This idea really goes beyond the institution or the academic work of preservation and speaks instead to the communities that are directly affected by this preservation work. In this case, the queer and black communities whose history was not really being saved by other institutions. That's right, Danielle. Stephen believes that archives should be deeply rooted in the communities in which they're located. That context is invaluable for telling the complete story of the lives of people like Stormy Delavery. Stormy Delaverly reportedly threw the first punch at Stonewall and was um, a cabaret singer, traveled with uh, Jewelbox Review, which was a, um, a drag show that traveled. Um, and Stormy, Stormy's papers were actually being thrown out the window because she had been tossed out of where she lived. She was behind in her rent, and so they tossed her out of the Chelsea Hotel. But Michelle um, Zalapani and Lisa 
Canastrati were two women that lived in New Stormy and again, went into her apartment as they were throwing things away, collected that material. They went on to take care of Stormy to get her into a, a good nursing home. And when she passed, they became a st- her estate holders. And so they took care of her estate. They looked for institutions that might be interested in Stormy stuff. And I remember when Michelle called me, I said, I'd love to see this stuff. Went to the Chelsea Hotel and I'm just going through boxes of photographs, so many photographs. Stormy, who was performing as a woman or a woman identified um, femme in, as, in, the, in cabarets, I think in the 30s or 40s, and then right at the time she's into the 40s and 50s, she's doing drag king work with Jewelbox Review. And then she's hitting her 50s around, Storm, um, around Stonewall. You know, <laughs> so I mean, she's had this really amazing life and the photographs are so amazing. I cannot impart <laughs> how wonderful. There are headshots, there are vernacular shots, there are photographs of other um, drag performers getting ready. There's black and white, you know, the, the three by fives, just amazing look at her life. You alluded to this earlier, but I wonder if the In the Life archive contains gaps that you would really like to see filled. So I mentioned earlier while I was building the Epistolary Lives collection that there were no bisexual, identifiable bisexuals or identifiable trans people, that letters I could actually pull from. I would love to see those two areas developed. I think less in gaps than I think, because I think our history is full of gaps. So I don't think that there's any complete anything. I just feel like there are places that need to grow. And so definitely the trans and bisexual. I would also love to see more work come out around language and languaging. It's something that happens in the um, in the academy all the time. But those books, you know, they sit on shelves. People aren't going to go read a bunch of theory. <laughs> I want more of that, uh, more of a, a community-based approach to how people have identified themselves over the years in Black communities, both um, North and South America, as well as the Caribbean and so forth. And archives have a hard time, as you know, I mean, for those who know this, are um, underfunded, have been underfunded since the beginning of time. (laughs) And um, so they can't collect everything. They don't have the space to do it or the person power to do it. And non-custodial models and working with a community that's more informed about how archives work and can work it lessens the, um, it helps build really great partnerships in getting things preserved. I love Stephen's take here that there's no complete anything. It's of course true. How could an archive capture absolutely everything from any particular moment in the past? But it also speaks to an evolution in how historians and archivists think about their work. Many archives in the past were part of state or educational institutions and only considered it important to collect the records of the powerful and elite. And they didn't really let the public have access to these records. 
Over time, this notion of whose history is worth preserving has really expanded, a change that was pushed always by the people whose history was not being saved. That's right, Danielle. In the United States, a big push towards these sorts of polyvocal and more equitable archives started in the 1970s, and LGBTQ plus activists were a big part of this movement. Stephen used the term non-custodial models to describe this new approach to archiving that has called for materials to be saved and cared for within the communities that created them. These community archives have also tended to be more accessible to the public and to members of those communities. Those activists shifted the field's way of thinking about who, quote, owns the past and pushed many institutions into more equitable and collaborative ways of collecting materials. The Schomburg is a great example of one of these institutions, keeping thousands of files about black history right in the middle of Harlem, a historically black neighborhood. And now there's even more ways for the public to access archival materials through digital tools and experiences. Yeah, that's right. These community-centric models and new tools give so many more people access to the powerful experience of looking for and finding people from the past whose lives resonate with their own. And Stephen knows about that thrill firsthand. It's been a learning experience. It's been a joy. At times it's been a disappointment when I find someone who just threw away something and they didn't see any reason why they had no, they weren't thinking about the historical significance of something This happened to me at least three times. And um, so I'm like, I didn't get here early enough. I should have caught a month earlier. Um, but I feel chosen to do the work. I feel like it's a responsibility to continue building with the various community members who are doing this kind of work, but also being um, helping to translate the information so that it's so that your grandmother can understand it, <laughs> right? Or why this is important and why this matters and so forth. And so I'm always keeping my ears open for new ways in which we um, collect materials, make them available to the public, and also how communities themselves can start community archives. Like there's no one way to do this. I think that's one of the things I'm, that I'd like to impart is that there's no one way to collect black LGBTQ materials and so forth. And that um, I'm an advocate for all of them, <laughs> even the ones I don't know about yet, because I'm sure there's a reason why. <laughs> Wow. Annie, thank you so much for speaking with Stephen. He has such a great understanding of the influence and function of archives and how the experiences of the LGBTQ plus community can be represented there. He really does, Danielle. I learned so much from my conversation with him. I think it's important to note as we close this episode out that LGBTQ plus archives and archives in general are part of a broader story. I think this is what Stephen was getting at by focusing on the context of the Schomburg and the other places that he's worked. These stories are a part of Black history, LGBTQ plus history, but they're also stories of the communities in which they take place, and more broadly, U.S. history. Absolutely. Each archive allows us to look deeper into those histories. For LGBTQ plus folks, an archive like the one Stephen set up gives us an opportunity to see ourselves in a story we've often been left out of. For queer African-American folks, this archive is even more meaningful. Next time, we'll learn about another effort to collect LGBTQ plus history when we speak with Dr. Michelle O'Brien about the New York City Trans Oral History Project. Thanks so much for joining us, and we hope you'll come back for the next episode of Making Queer History Public. 
This episode was produced by the American Social History Project, a nonprofit research center that produces print, visual, and multimedia materials that explore the diverse social and cultural histories of the nation. It was funded with a grant from Humanities New York. It was hosted by myself, Danielle Bennett, and the American Social History Project's executive director, Annie Valk. It was produced by Penny Bender, Donna Thompson-Ray, and David Sheckle, with assistance from Bo Lancaster and Maggie Schreiner. Thanks to Bo Lancaster, Julian Hassan, Maggie Schreiner, Penny Bender, and the American Social History Project Center for Media and Learning. Special thanks to our guest, Stephen Fullwood. Theme music by Julian Hassan.